Welcome to Series 3 of Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and every week I'm chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, looking back at four decades of their productions all across the world. Together, we'll take a look at what these plays have to tell us about the messy business of being human. In this bonus episode for Series 3, we're going to be serving up some gems which didn't quite make it into other episodes. Declan and Nick call this their tagliatelle, a dish made from offcuts of pasta dough. And here are their most delicious cuttings. We've been talking a lot about the history of the company recently, because the 17th of August this year marks four decades to the day that Cheek by Jowl opened their very first tour, The Country Wife. I started by asking Declan about an odd fact of Cheek by Jowl's repertoire. Whether it's Shakespeare, Middleton, Corneille, Racine or Calderon, most of the plays that he and Nick have staged come from the same 75-year period, right at the start of the 17th century. I asked him why. Well, I often ask myself that. I can't explain it. It is extraordinary that there's this flowering of theatre writing that starts around 1585, and finishes about 1670. And I think it's that the Reformation has allowed a freedom of thought that hadn't been there before. But then when the Enlightenment starts, I think things shudder to a standstill in some respects. You know, the big philosophical movement that started um, towards the end of the 17th century and reaches full flowering in the 18th century. And it's logic, 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 clarity, clarity. And many things are considered old-fashioned, superstitious, uncool, to do with ghosts and hauntings and mystery, and they get pushed aside. Unfortunately, they're kind of part of what it is to be a human being. And I think that Shakespeare hadn't been hobbled by the Enlightenment. He was able to think in a more free way. Because if you live in a world where all light is good and all dark is bad, you live in a very limited world, I think. Um, The Enlightenment has done wonderful things. We get antibiotics, you know, we get all sorts of things. But there's no gain without loss. Every efficiency makes a loss. We've just had a package delivered from Amazon. One clicks my CS thumbs up. But actually, there's incredible losses in all of this new increased efficiency. People's jobs, ways of life, all sorts of things go. And you have to think what we lost in the Enlightenment as well. And I think one of the things we lost is Shakespeare. And I think if Shakespeare had been born 100 years later, he couldn't have been Shakespeare because there wouldn't have been an audience open to see things so horizontally. So if we could think a little bit about Hamlet. So if you're looking at Hamlet now, a modern person might say, but I'm not a Renaissance prince. My uncle didn't murder my father and marry my mother. So what's that got to do with me? So first of all, I think all of us have the ghosts of our parents in us, even if they're long dead. We remember them more vividly often than anything else. And things that they've said to us have passed into us, become part of us. We've dealt with them. Um, sometimes they're extremely good things, useful things, and sometimes they're very bad things and not so useful. And I don't think Hamlet is the last human being to realize that he's been destroyed by bad advice from his father. And the Enlightenment tidied up a lot of things. But unfortunately, if you get rid of ghosts and hauntings, you get rid of a lot of what it is to be a human being. Well, I human nature doesn't change. Whatever we do, we ain't going to redesign human nature. Some people might say, well, if Hamlet's all about, you know, how we live now, why don't we um, write it, rewrite it in modern English? And I'd say, well, of course you can do modern versions of it. You know, I've done a sung version of Falstaff, and I've done two ballets that don't have words in them uh, based on Shakespeare. But I think that 
you get something sometimes by having to struggle with the language. In other words, the door's half closed, but you have to push it a bit to open it. And I think that's, uh, that's very important, that we respect mystery. I think it's really important to try and understand things, but the fatal thing is to think, aha, I have understood. As soon as you put it in its past tense, I think something's probably gone wrong. And here's Nick, talking more about how Cheek by Jowl has developed as a company over the years. We've developed Cheek by Jowl into a vehicle which entirely, I'm afraid, suits the way we work. It's very portable. We tour a lot. And we're able to do these plays which actually don't require much in, physically in terms of scenery. And we have an ensemble spirit because Teclan's particularly good at, cre- at leading an ensemble company, I think. And there's no sense of stars in the company being taken apart and having notes separately from the company. Everybody gets their notes at the same time together. I think they love that sense of ensemble. I think all actors actually aspire to that. I mean, I love going in with an idea which then has to be thrown out. Of course you go in with an idea because you have a backstop, but normally it's thrown out. So it can be quite hard over that second weekend when you've got the production manager knocking on the door saying, look, you know, if you, if you want anything at all, you're going to have to make up your mind. But it's exciting and that's what we like to do. And now back over to Declan. We're talking about which character in all of the plays that he's directed he would most like to have dinner with. I think without question it would be uh, Amelia from Othello. But whenever you see Othello, you always forget how major she is. She's actually at the heart of the plot. There are often women who appear to be subsidiary, who are in fact central, because they're the moral centre of the play. I always thought of that of Harper in, in Angels in America by Tony Kushner. I was, was guided by that character through, but Amelia very much in Othello, and she's the one I'd really most like to have dinner with. I think the rest would all give me the creeps. She's the heart of the play because she's the one who has the most common sense. She's the only person with, some, with a sense of humour, and she is the most loving, and she's in this camp with all these terrible men. And then the only woman that she has to be her friend is Desdemona. And they're talking about sex in the bedroom that night, in that wonderful, wonderful scene, the scene between her and Desdemona. And she starts talking about men and sex, and it's fine. Then Desdemona says, but do you really think there are women who cheat on their husbands? And at that moment, I think, Amelia must get a terrible sinking feeling to think, oh my God, there's only one woman here, and she's so strange. You want to say to Desdemona, haven't you read the Bible? I mean, there's plenty of examples of men and women, women as well, who cheat on their husbands. But she's, well, then she must feel so isolated. There's an extraordinary moment in Othello when Amelia realises that Desdemona is being framed as having had this affair with Cassio, but she doesn't realise it's her own husband that does it. And in the middle of all this kind of male froth that's going on, lots of either big talking it up like Othello, and Iago plays the opposite. He's got a kind of way of talking low, but it's still a sort of hokum. It's, it's, it's still a performance of being somebody who's tough and cunning or, or somebody who's outspoken. But anyway, um, Amelia realises that Desdemona is being framed and it's, that it's a very dangerous situation. And she snorts and says, you know, oh, this is nonsense. Says, what place, what time, what form, what likelihood. And I've never in my whole life, I've done it so often in different languages in workshops and I've done two productions of it. I've never seen an actress not scorn 
with contempt, that word, wonderful word likelihood. It really connects with people in a, in a wonderful way. I mean, it's, and I don't know why we always forget it, but it's like, it's such a star turn. But she has such a kind of wise, but witty, and she never preaches, she never seems to be superior. There's just something, there's something really wonderful in the spirit of Amelia. If you've listened in to the last couple of series, you'll notice that Nick finds his design inspiration from what he encounters during his day-to-day life as the company travels the world. Whether it's ceiling lights from Sydney Theatre Company, riot gear from the Chilean police, or an oppressive Parisian Airbnb. I asked him how he went about collecting these inspirations. They appear quite organically, if I if I remember them. I mean, I remember the red boxes in our in a Russian measure for measure. There was a red box, but it was just a small cube in the rehearsal room, and it, I think it was a soft red square bean bag, and that was the source of the red boxes. I, I think, I think. So these things come from funny places. Maybe they're stored up in your mind or not. The thing that crossed my mind on on the first production of Cheek by Jowl, which was The Country Wife, and the set consisted of, guess what, boxes. So maybe things haven't developed at all, I don't know. I mean, all my my sets are boxes, I'm afraid. But they're very useful, you know, you can store things in boxes. That was a very, very clever set, inspired by my partner here, Declan. The idea of a box as a wardrobe. There's an absolutely key scene which takes place in um, a wardrobe. And this was a a very useful box because it could double up as sedan chairs and all sorts of things. And here's Declan again, talking more about why he avoids questions about the how and why of doing a play. How and why questions sound very plausible. How should I play my character? How should I play this scene? Um, Why is my character doing this? How should I direct this play? I get asked those questions a lot, but the real problem is in the question because the answer to how should I play my character is you must see through the character's eyes what the character sees. If you start to answer the question how, you put yourself in a slightly godlike position. The best that we can say is, you know, where have I put my shoes? From what position do I stand that gives me this view of this? If we say, well, how would you like me to do this? It implies, oh, I've got a million different ways at my disposal. I can ruffle through the chocolate box of my techniques, and this is how I'm going to do that. But really, I know from bitter experience that if Nick and I ever have a conversation about, how do you think we should do this scene? Where do you think they should come on from? Um, We've gone terribly wrong. There should be no choice as to where they come on from. There should be no choice as to how to play it. And if you look hard enough into the heart of the predicament that's happening, you'll realise what the um, characters feel is that they have no choice, you know? Nick and I would feel, I think, that we have no choice but to do what we're doing, which is to put one foot in front of another and go on working. But, you know, a lot of our friends might say, well, there's all sorts of different things you could do. But from inside our perception, we don't have that much choice, actually. Um, why is another really dodgy question? Because that why implies that we know our motives for doing things. This is very enlightenment, you know. Um, I want to know why you did that, and you have to give an answer. We do live in a world where people expect there to be an answer to the question, why? And if you can't answer why, it's like you're being irresponsible or playing stupid. But actually, I I normally don't know why I do things. And the the best things I've done in my work, I can't explain why. And if you ever read an interview with me, and I say, the reason I did this is because of this, 
Um, it's probably a lie that I, I've got forced into a corner by the interviewer because I feel stupid not to be able to say why. But the real reason I do everything that I do, the best of what I do, is I do it because it seems a good idea at the time. But what seems a good idea at the time, of course, Nick and I do it by talking a lot about the play, doing exercises. There's a mass that goes into it. It's not just a whim. You know, it's built on very, very secure foundations. We ask the question, why? And of course, these questions are there for us to ask. I mean, that's exactly the question that we must be asking about Macbeth. Why do they do it? But we must also be humble enough to know that we'll never know the answer to that. And Macbeth and Lady Macbeth don't know the answer to that. They don't know why they do it. It's a huge mystery. It's a mystery watching all of the tragedies, watching people blunder towards their own destruction when they're sort of very bright and seem to have so many choices to us, but from their individual perceptions, they don't have any. When we put on a play, we must try to avoid being superior to the characters, judging the characters, being too clever about the characters, being frightened of the characters. We need to see the characters as unflinchingly as we can. But we can only do that if we look at the position from which we're seeing the characters ourselves. Because what we have to do at the end is see the world through their eyes. We're not putting ourselves on stage. It's other people's perceptions that we're putting on stage. Of course, when we start talking about other people's perceptions, you know, we'll give ourselves away. You know, I mean, I mean, I try to keep myself invisible in my work, but I imagine I'm pretty visible in it. You know, I, I work to be invisible, but I don't think I achieve it very well. That's something I must do every day in rehearsal to keep readjusting my feet so I keep horizontal with the play. It's very easy to get out of kilter. I have to, it's like I have to wake up every day, slap myself awake. Um, and I, I need to make sure that I'm seeing through the perceptions of the characters to see what they see, what is the world, what is the world that's happening, what is the world that they think is happening, what is it they perceive is happening. Because, you know, I'm in my own delirium, but the characters are also in their own delirium. <laughs> I slap myself awake, at least through the window of my work, to, or try to, to be as present as I can be with what's actually happening. So I asked Nick if he and Declan avoid talking about the how and why of their productions. What do they focus on instead? What we have been thinking about is, is about the space and about how actors work in the space. And that has been a fascinating process. And we talk about that all the time. And that um, has been developing during the pandemic and for many years before. But it's sort of, I think, finally coming to fruition. There will be a book, and soon, I think. So, um, listeners, please look out for it. Last but not least, I asked Declan what advice he would give to him and Nick. Looking back 40 years ago to their 20-something selves in the August of 1981, waiting for the lights to go up on Cheek by Jowl's first ever performance. Here's what he said. Oh, I just think that the only advice is to be present and see what's happening. And But you have to come to these things in your own time. And all advice is dodgy, it's all political. All advice is a bit, why aren't you more like me, very often, you know. So... I think it'll be all right is the best, actually. You're doing okay, and it'll be scary, but you'll get through that. And to just be told that we'd still be here 40 years later would be an amazing thing. I you know, if I could give advice, I'd say, you know, you'll swing into fashion, out of fashion, back into fashion. Back, and all you need to do is survive, you know. I think we keep our work changing, because what else are Nick and I going to do? I think what you see on stage is a result of a kind of evolving conversation between me and Nick. But we absolutely need outside people in we're both going crazy here in the lockdown because we haven't um people to collaborate with 
The things that sustains us is, funnily enough, it's our relationship with actors that have gone on a long time. So it's our relationship with Russian actors that have gone on since the 20th century. And they're growing old with us. And we love working with them. And I haven't seen them at all now during lockdown. And Nick and I really kind of feel the, the miss, you know. And when we don't drink vodka on our own in case it makes us miss them too much. Looking back, it looks like we've had a great career. And there's a, a well-known English theatre director who said to me, he's older than me, he said, oh, you two, it all looks so effortlessly come together for you. And I can assure you that the perception from the inside is that our whole lives have been done on a wing and a prayer and terrified that, you know, California won't drop out. And you've got the actors for six weeks and nothing to pay them with in the middle of a tour. That's like perennial. That's grist to the mill. I mean, there's, there's very little comfort. And I, all I'd say about careers, I, I do get frightened by young people asking about how they should plan their careers. And all I can genuinely say is don't. Do what you love. Be with the people you love. And it'll probably work out. It worked out like that for me. I know that. Uh, but it was very, very hard. And I don't like to say, oh, God, we've suffered, we've suffered, we've suffered. But it was very hard. It was very scary. We never knew if the company was going to close down for a long time. So we have all our plays listed in the programme. <laughs> like it was all a very kind of gentle and thought-through process. But, I, God almighty, it so wasn't. It's It's so much, so much based on luck. It really is based on luck. When you're starting your career, you should really think to yourself, I must take my work seriously, but I should not take my career seriously. That is so unfashionable now, when people are urged to take their careers seriously. Honest to God, my advice, my personal experience from my own witness is take your work seriously, but don't take your career seriously. I know it's not easy, but it's never easy. And it's taken a whole lifetime to get those conditions right and a whole lifetime to say no to things in order to say yes to this. You know, there wasn't a job advertised in the stage. All I can say is Nick and I were very, very lucky. Thank you for listening to Not True But Useful. If you're new to this podcast, then head over to the Cheek by Jow website to find three series of interviews with Declan and Nick. The music you heard in this bonus episode all comes from past productions, composed by Paddy Kinnean for The Winter's Tale, Gianluca Misiti for The Revenger's Tragedy, Sergei Chekrashov for Three Sisters, and Catherine Jays for Macbeth. Please remember to rate, review, and share us. And we hope to be back with you soon. <laughs>